morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad you're here. If you've noticed, there's some more chairs in here, um, and, and here's why. God is moving, um, and God is moving not just here at Common Ground. He's moving in the area. Uh, last year, as you know, we had 35-some baptisms. Um, other churches, if maybe some of you have relationships with other churches, there are churches that are getting healthy in really neat ways. Um, the pastor of the Baptist church in town texted me a couple days ago that they have a baptism today. Um, and it's just fun to celebrate what God is doing in our community. So people are going to keep coming. We can expect it. So we've added chairs. We really have liked the energy of being in one service. We've enjoyed being together. And so we're going to try and stick with that, um, which means... You know, in future weeks when people start really filling in, it's okay to scoot to the middle and, and put your arm around somebody you don't know yet. Um, actually, don't do that. That'll make them awkward. Um, but this is exciting. That's why you're seeing all these chairs. So if I were to ask you to describe God in just a couple words, what words would come to mind? You know, would you say my savior, my rock, uh, God is love. Maybe you'd go to his attributes, omniscient omnipotent, immutable, meaning never changing? How would you describe him? And does the way you think about God align with who God actually is? Today we're going to be in Romans 9. And we're going to be looking at some, some maybe hard truths. They're actually pretty easy to understand, but they can be difficult really to grasp. Because it challenges some of those things. Sometimes you've probably said it or heard it say, oh, my God wouldn't do that. Or my God wouldn't be like that. Or I can't believe in a God that would whatever. The problem is our minds don't always grasp who God really is. And our goal is to know God the way he really is. I like uh, A.W. Tozer's quote. It says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. So is your God a buffet God? Right? You go to a buffet. You're like, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm not going to eat that. That's gross. Right? Or, or is he one of those, you're going to accept everything you, you receive in Scripture. You're going to hear that and go, okay, even when I might not understand or my knee jerk is to disagree I'm going to submit to God's word and who God actually is. This, uh, this chapter is really about God's sovereignty, God being in charge. I looked up on Google because that's the expert, and sovereignty is defined as supreme power or authority. Are you okay with God having supreme power and authority over you, over truth, over all creation, over everything. Are you okay with God being sovereign? Yeah, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> and I want to remind us of Isaiah 55, 9. Because again, a lot of times we think we know some things or we wish things were a certain way, but we're warned. God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Meaning, if you have a belief about God and then you're confronted with the truth in Scripture, who wins? Is it you based on culture, science, whatever? Or is it the Bible? Does God win when you're confronted with a difficult truth? And today we're going to look at one of those difficult truths. And here's the question. You've probably heard it. How can God send somebody to hell? If God is good, how could he allow anybody to go to hell? And there is a, a popular heresy 
in the American church, in universal church, of um, universalism, right? That everybody eventually will be saved. The problem is the Bible is very, very clear. We can be saved through Jesus alone, meaning if somebody rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're not saved. They don't get to go to heaven. And so that's where people start to have this rub of, oh, but if God is good, how could he allow somebody to go to hell? And we're going to see that in this passage, the truth. Now, specifically, a little bit of context before we get into it. Specifically here, we're looking at the Jews, right? The Israelite people. Because Paul has been writing so far in Romans, we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. And a, the early church was made up really primarily of Jewish believers, right? Those who converted from Judaism because they had the real faith. They really did. They had the real scriptures that all pointed to Jesus. And, and so they then, they're reading Romans so far and going, wait a minute. You're saying, if, if I'm a Jew, but I don't accept Jesus, I'm not saved. And Paul says, yeah, right? So the context is Jews. But for us, maybe don't tune out because you're like, well, I've never wondered about that. Well, how about your family members? How about your people you love, right? People you love that don't believe in Jesus and you struggle with the idea that they won't be going to heaven, right? That they don't belong to him. He's talking to that. So let's look at nine, starting in verse one. Paul writes, said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is addressing that right there. My, my fellow brothers, my fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites that don't believe in Jesus, how do I feel about them? Because some in right, the Christian church have been anti-Semitic or you know, against the Jews. That's been really throughout all of creation since they were a people. Um, but here, Paul is making really clear a Christian really can't be a, against the Jews. And Paul himself was a Jew, right? And he's looking at them, and he says something that I really struggled with when I was younger and I read this. He says, I wish that I would basically go to hell. I'd be accursed so that they could be saved. There's the heart. <laughs> Can you say that? Until I had kids, I really struggled with that. Now, for my kids, if I know they're, if it's my eternity or theirs, I'll give up my eternity for them. I know I would for the rest of you, but um, <laughs> I, I'm just being honest. But that's the heart, right? Paul's heart here is I love these lost people so much, I would be accursed for them. There's no, no pride in that. There's no, there's, it's all humility, right, of the heart for the lost. And a lot of times, we as the church can become, you know, separate, you know, we're this special, unique group, and, and just stay away from those. This is the real heart, right? The real heart is for the lost, and specifically here, the Jews. Now, he encourages a little bit. He says, I'm just saying, the Jews, they did have the patriarchs. They did have the, they have really good things, right? They were God's chosen people, but they pointed to Christ. And so you can't be saved and reject Christ, even if you have all these great things that the Jews did have, that the Israelites did have. And it really came down to the last phrase, I think, in verse 5. It says, the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Jesus' divinity 
has always been kind of a sticking point for pretty much anybody, right? Jesus is divinity. Do you believe Jesus is God? So here's the question then. If not all Jews are saved, did God's promises to the Jews, to the Israelites in the Old Testament, did they fail? Well, he's going to address that. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Paul is correcting a false assumption that all Israel would be saved. That because they were genetically in the line from Abraham, they're automatically a child of God. And he's correcting that. And he's saying, actually, that's never been the case. So if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you remember Abraham was the the first Israelite, really, right? He was God's chosen one. He said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And eventually through that great nation is going to come Christ the Messiah who would save people from all people groups. But he chose Abraham. And he gave Abraham a promise. And by the way, Abraham was, was old. He was close to 100 years old. And he says, through your wife, Sarah, you're going to become a great nation. Right? Land, seed, and blessing was this covenant he gave to Abraham. Well, Abraham and Sarah, um, right, they look. Sarah's like, hey, I'm pretty old. I'm not sure. You know, they struggled with doubt a little bit. So she takes her Egyptian handmaid and says, here, Abraham, take her as, as a second wife and produce an heir through her. He's like, all right. So... She gets pregnant. She has Ishmael. Well, God had promised through Sarah, not through Hagar. So Abraham has these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Well, the promise went through Isaac, not through Ishmael. You know, I mean, God sees, okay, Hagar had a, had a son. He's going to raise, God says, he'll be a great nation as well. Um, most of the Arabs can really trace their lineage back to him. Uh, so he says, thanks for the help, Abraham. Don't do that again. Um, through Sarah, is the promise. So Ishmael is a son of Abraham, but not a son of the promise. A lot of these Jews in this time were saying, hey, we're sons of Abraham, therefore we're a child of God. Well, Ishmael wasn't. Well, then you can go, okay, well, Ishmael wasn't because his mom was an Egyptian, right? She was just a handmaid, something like that. Well, what about the other? So he goes on to the next example, which is Rebekah. So Abraham has Isaac through Sarah, and Isaac marries Rebekah. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, of course, in that time, typically the oldest son would be the, the heir, right? The heir would, the promise, all that would go through the, the oldest son. Well, here you have Abraham, Isaac, and then he has Jacob and Esau, and God chooses Jacob. Esau was older. He should have chose Esau, but God chose Jacob. So Jacob then would have 12 sons. If you remember the history, that would become the nation of Israel but not Esau. Esau would also become his own nation called Edom. If you look in maps in your Old Testament, you can see Edom. So why Jacob and not Esau? It's a weird choice. Same mother, right? Same lineage, all of that. And it really comes down to God chose. 
Now, did God choose because Jacob was good? Because there's the question, and, and this has come into the church a lot. God chooses the best. Well, look around. Um, God doesn't choose the best. God, God, in fact, Jacob, right, he was born second, and when he, he was holding his brother's heel. And so his name means heel grabber, which also means deceiver. And a large portion of his life, as you read through in Genesis, he was a deceiver. Right? He, he got ahead by tricking and stealing and all this stuff. He was not a real quality dude. So God didn't look forward and be like, ooh, he's going to be a good guy. I'll choose him. In fact, it took a lot of time. He had a bunch of sons until Jacob had this encounter with God, right, where God wrestles with him. It's a cool story. God touches his hip, goes out of joint, and he renames him. That's where the word Israel comes from, the name Israel for the whole nation. He renames him Israel. After that point, he really does change. Before that, he was not really a, a very good dude. So you look here, God doesn't choose based on the merit of the person. And that's what Paul's pointing out here. He didn't choose Jacob because he's better. He chose him before they were born and ever did anything. He chose. I mean, what's it come down to? God is free to choose. God is completely sovereign. It comes down to basically God says so, right? Maybe parents, you said that to your kids. Why do I have to do this? Because I said so. Why did God choose? Because he said so. You know, it says here that he hated Esau. That isn't a, an emotion of, of hate. That's really a, a choice of priority. You know, Jesus would say later, if you don't hate your father and mother and compared to your love for me, right, you cannot be my disciple. We're supposed to love our father and mother. So it's an idea of priority. And the priority is uh, Jacob because he's the son of the promise. So here is this difficult truth. It's called election. Verse 11 is where he kind of lays this out. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Those whom God chooses to be part of his family are called the elect. This is the difficult doctrine and the reason most pastors skip this chapter. Because this is, it's easy to understand, but it's really hard to grasp. Some are elect and others are not, and it's not based on what they do. It's based on God choosing from before time. Now, I have two issues with this. One, it doesn't seem fair to me. Two, a lot of people have used this doctrine, this here, to split churches. In my adult life, I know five churches that have been split over this, mainly this doctrine. Because people get all proud, ooh, I'm the elect, and now I'm going to judge you because your life doesn't look good enough. And, and they split churches over this. And so part of our knee jerk to that is, well, let's just avoid it then, right? Uh, but just because, I'll deal with that second one first, just because people misuse a biblical truth doesn't mean it's not still true, right? I, we've gone that way with the charismatic church. Sometimes they take things way too far. It's like, well, then let's avoid the movement of the Spirit altogether. Well, heck no, we need the movement of the Spirit, and so we need to go to Scripture and see what is actually true. But now the second one, well, that doesn't seem fair, right? So, so God chooses some and not others, and he chose before the beginning of time. I mean, Ephesians 1, well, here's, this is in your note first. God does not choose based on the merit of the individual. That's the, that's the truth of election, and that's what we have a hard part with, that God does not choose based on the merit of of the individual. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. God chose. Now, here's the way some people get around this. 
Okay, God looked forward in time. He's outside of time. So he looked forward in time, and he saw those who would choose him, therefore he chose them. Well, that's, that's kind of a way to get around God's sovereignty. Then your salvation is because you're good enough. It's because you choose that he chooses, meaning he's responding to you, which means you could lose it, which means it's up to you. I mean, this gets kind of convoluted there, but we don't want that. We want it to be up to God. We want his sovereignty, not up to us. So he chose ahead of time, not based on our choice. Again, not fair. Well, he's going to address that. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. If you count mercy and compassion, those words, they appear six times in just that little section. And he's addressing that exact question. This does not seem fair. Well, here's, here's his explanation. It all comes down to that word, mercy. This is uh, Paul quoting Moses, quoting God, where he says, I will show mercy on whom I have mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is, is uh, basically withholding a punishment that's due, right? That's mercy. Uh, a cop catches a, a, a young man tagging a... a street sign or something like that, and he just takes a can and lets them go. That's, that's mercy. Mercy is not giving something what they're due. Uh, you work a job all week, 40 hours a week for 20 bucks an hour. When you get your paycheck, that's, what you're, that's not mercy. You earned it, right? So mercy is not giving what somebody is owed. God shows mercy when he does not punish a person the way they deserve. We've already seen this in Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. For the wages of sin is death. Scripture tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. Meaning, all deserve hell and eternal condemnation. You do, I do, everybody's in the same boat there because all have sinned. And again, it seems that's not fair. Is God fair? This might surprise you. God's not fair. And you should be glad he's not. Because if God was fair, all of us would be condemned. Was it fair that Jesus went to the cross and took our sins? Jesus, who was God in flesh, who lived perfectly, that had the, the nails driven through his hands and his feet, the, the thorns put on his head, and then the sins of the world on him. Was that fair? That was not fair. But that's how we can be saved. And then he takes that and gives us salvation. Again, it's not fair, and we're glad he's not fair. We better not cry out for God to be fair. Because again, mercy is not fair. Mercy is withholding what is due. The fact that God chooses some people to be saved is not fair because the truth is that every individual deserves condemnation. Let me give you an example. Five men, they kidnap your, your son, right? They take him into a basement. They torture him for six hours, and then they kill him slowly while making fun of him. Those five men are caught. They're arrested. They go to trial. The jury finds them guilty. The judge sentences them uh, uh, to death by lethal injection. You're there in the room, right? They're over there. They're condemned. They're sentenced. You stand up. Judge, can I speak? He says, yeah, you're, you're the father. You're the mother of, of the deceased. Speak. 
said, I would like to show mercy to that one. Right? Of the five there found guilty, he said, that one right there. Don't, don't judge that one. Let that one go. The judge says, are you kidding me? They're guilty of murder. You know what they did to your son. I can't just let them go. Right? I can't put them back on the street. He says, okay, fine. I'll adopt them. They'll come live with me. They'll come take the place of my son. They will receive the inheritance that was going to go to him. They're mine. I'll make them mine. Right? That's, that's not fair. So the attorney gets up for all five and says, um, not fair. They should all go free. That makes no sense. Right? No, they shouldn't all go free. In fact, all should be condemned. But if one gets to go free, that's, that's mercy. That's mercy. So this idea of, of election, we get so wrapped up, right, that God chooses some but not others, and it's not fair, and it's not fair, and it's not fair, but we can trust him, right? We can trust him to show mercy when he desires. We can trust him. Mercy is not owed to anyone. That's why it's called mercy. That's why it's called mercy. And if God chooses to use a wicked person like Pharaoh for his glory, he can do that, right? He used Pharaoh. He did Pharaoh harden his own heart first, and then God hardens his heart so that he could show his glory to all the world. In fact, this morning when I was getting ready, I was listening to some, you know, gospel music. Um, and in one of those songs, they were singing about Pharaoh and God's glory and what he did with the plague. We're still telling that story, right? So God chose to show his glory through an evil person, Pharaoh. He's free to do that. He is free to do that. But again, that doesn't seem fair, right? So, so if God hardens somebody and uses their destruction for his glory, well, that's not fair because who can resist him? Well, there's the question. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? For me, this is huge. Look at the arrogance of that question. The arrogance of that question. God, I've been alive 40 years, 60 years, 70 years, however old you, I've been around this long, and in my wisdom, I think you're wrong. In my wisdom, I think this is the way things should be. We do this all the time, right? I hear this all, my God wouldn't do this. I was sitting with some church leaders at one point, and somebody at the table said, I know the Bible says, but... Well, anything after the but, you're wrong, <laughs> right? That we then stand in judgment on what God says. In our wisdom, we know better than him. Remember Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so God will answer this very bluntly in verse 20 through 24. He says, who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. How does he respond to that? Basically like this, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are, oh man? Who are you, little man, to think you're smarter than me? Right, the, the picture here I have is of the, the teen boy who starts uh, feeling himself. He's like, I'm smarter than dad. I'm tougher than dad. Right, remember the Garth Brooks song, The Night I Called the Old Man Out? They go outside and dad's like, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Um, wait, no, me more than it's going to hurt you. Anyway, but, but it's kind of that idea, right? The, the, the boy starting to feel it and God's like, or the, the dad, you know, I'm going to have to put you in your place, right? You're getting a little bit too big for your britches. I feel like that's what God would say in maybe a different version, right? When you think you know better than him, you're getting a little too big for your britches. He gets to define truth, right? He gets to lay it out. God, the sovereign creator, can do whatever he wants. He can. That's scary. Uh, I think back to Job. Remember in the book of Job, which is a true story of a, of a godly man who loses pretty much everything, except for his wife, but he should have lost her too. She was not helpful. So he loses all this stuff, and then you see chapter after chapter of his friends coming and going, hey, you must have done something wrong. This is all judgment on you because of your wickedness or whatever. And Job is silent, and Job is silent, and Job is... And then finally Job speaks out to God. God, why are you doing this to me? What's going on? And God then speaks to Job and says, who do you think you are? Were you there when I created everything? No. Were you there when I separated the land from the sea? No. Were you there when I created the animals with the word, where I, when I created man out of the dust? No. Ain't right? And Job's response is right, just humility. No, I wasn't. Sorry. <laughs> Zip. I'm done. That's where we should be. When we are confronted with God's truth that disagrees with ours or we don't get it, just accept it, right? Zip it. Just believe what he says is true. He is God and we are not. If I had one big point for this sermon, for this passage, God is God and we are not. I'm so glad. Now, if God was a wicked God or a mean, this would be really scary. But yet, God is good. God is love. Those things are aspects of him too. Go back to Romans 8, 28 that we looked at. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So this isn't scary because God is good. God is loving. God wants what's best for us. Proof, Jesus on the cross. We never have to question his love. Jesus on the cross. He took it for us. God is God, and we are not. Remember that quote from the beginning, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. Don't just think about God, think rightly about God. Think rightly about God. This truth actually brings peace. It actually brings hope and joy. Because for me, and this has happened all over in my life, life is happening, right? Whatever it is, and I need to respond in a certain way. And then I see in God's truth the way to handle it or the way to believe about it. I'm free. I'm free to go, okay, that's the way to do it. I believe you. I'm going to do it your way. And his way is always best. This is your last point. We must let Scripture reframe our view of God. Rather than taking what we want to believe or what culture says or anything else and putting that in, we let Scripture teach us about who God is. And then we live in that freedom. We live in that freedom. You know, we see here in this, we're the clay. You know, and God can mold us however he wants, right? I, I was hoping, I, I looked, I wanted to have somebody up here with like a, 
a, a wheel and making clay the, the whole time, you know, make a pot, make an ashtray or whatever. Um, just the, the clay at no point is like, I don't want to be an ashtray, right? <laughs> right? It's clay. You know, I mean, that's us. We're the clay. I also thought maybe I would make some stuff, and that would have been really bad. I'm like, look, a stick. Um, and this one's a snake. <laughs> but God can do whatever he wants, and we can trust him with that. Now, let me bust your brain real quick, and we're going to talk about this in group this week. If God chose from the beginning of time, before I ever did anything, does that mean my choice is not a real choice? I'm a robot. No. You have free will. Your choices are real choices. When you choose God, that's a real choice that you can choose not to choose. Good luck understanding that. I mean, to be honest, this is why we have to go back. There's some things I don't fully understand, but yet Scripture's clear. I can believe God. I can trust him. Our choices are real choices, but yet God at the same time is completely sovereign. And let me tell you this. God, in his sovereignty, brought you here today. Have you chosen Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to him? Or are you still trying to do it in your own strength? Again, you being here is not an accident. You're here for a reason. And maybe it's because God is calling you and says, I want you. You're mine. I chose you. Choose me. Believe in me. Accept me as Lord of your life. Because choosing God will be the best choice you will ever make. And, and those of us that are saved, we've, we've already made that choice. We still sometimes struggle, don't we, day to day? Which am I going to choose? Choosing to follow him will always, always be best for us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. God, I, I thank you. As we read through here, God, you are so patient and loving, but there is a point um, where you can be a, a blunt dad and go, hey, you're getting too big for your britches. I know better. You don't. Just trust me. God, I thank you for that. God, if we could fully understand you, you would be in a, a box of our own making. I thank you that there are mysteries we can't grasp. But God, I do thank you that in your scripture, you have given us so many things we can know, we can believe, and we trust you, God, with this. God, and we ask you to, to bring many, right now in our community, bring many, many more to faith in you, that they would enjoy all these benefits that you offer. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.